Hello again, and welcome to Global Exchange, part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. I'm your host, Colin Robertson. On this episode, recorded on June the 6th, we talk with Solange Marquez, Andres Rosenthal, and Jeffrey Simpson about the collection of essays, Mexico and Canada, Two Nations in a North American Partnership, a collaboration of the Mexican Council on Foreign Relations, the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, and the Law School at the National Autonomous University of Mexico, you can find the collection on the CJI website. We will link to it in the program notes. CJI fellow Solange is a professor at the Law School of the National Autonomous University of Mexico, a former vice president of the Mexican Council on International Affairs. She is its representative in Canada. A career foreign service officer, Andres served as Mexico's ambassador to Sweden and the United Kingdom and as deputy foreign minister. He is the founding president of the Mexican Council of Foreign Relations. He holds the lifetime rank of eminent ambassador of Mexico. CJI Advisory Council member Jeffrey Simpson is chair of the Canadian delegation to the Trilateral Commission. For over three decades, Jeffrey was the national affairs columnist for the Globe and Mail. Welcome Solange and welcome back Andres and Jeffrey. Thank you, Colin. Nice to be with you, Thank Colin. you so much. For listeners, arranged in three sections, the collection of 18 essays includes messages from our current ambassadors, a prologue by Andres, introduction by Solange, and my concluding essay on the future of the North American idea. The collection starts by looking at our economic relationship with essays examining Mexico's economic prospects, the new NAFTA, what we now call COSMA, energy, innovation, and intellectual property, and a piece on supply chains by my one-time NAFTA colleague, Luz Maria de la Mora. The second section looks at collaboration and connectivity with essays on Mexico and Canada written by former Mexican ambassador to Canada, Juan Jose Gomez Camacho, as well as Carlo Dade and Augustin Gomez. The section also includes essays on building a lasting bridge between Canada and Mexico, Mexico and Quebec, and Solange's essay on democratic collaboration. People, education, and culture is covered in the third section with essays on student mobility, suggestions on academic collaboration, look at our civil and common law systems in both countries, and a perceptive essay on our respective lack of media coverage of each other's countries. Again, I strongly encourage listeners to dig into this smorgasbord of essays on a relationship that deserves more attention. So let's get started. Andres, this new collection builds on work you directed a decade ago with my former colleague, Alexandra Bugaliskis. I recall reading some of the earlier essays. Did we make progress on the recommendations? And why did you decide it was time to look once again at the Canada-Mexico relationship? Thank you, Colin, for having me. Uh, and it's great to see Solange, who edited this volume, and uh, Jeffrey, with whom I have had a longstanding relationship, both uh, in the uh, Mexico, US, and Canada relationship. I think uh, what we did was look back at the publication that Alex, uh, Alex Bogaliskis and I uh, edited back in 2012. And we thought that a decade later, it would be worthwhile trying to see where we stood in the Canadian-Mexican relationship. A relationship which is always to some extent um, overshadowed both in Canada and in Mexico by our relationships, our bilateral relationships with the United States. So taking advantage of Solange's presence in Canada, uh, 
COMEXI, the Mexican Council on Foreign Relations, uh, together with the UNAM, uh, decided that it would be a good time to go back and look at what has happened over these 10 years. Uh, we have a different set of authors uh, that uh, prepared chapters for this uh, publication. But I think it's uh, fair to say that most of the issues that were covered a decade ago are still very much on the front burner in terms of our relationship, uh, our bilateral mutual relationship. And I think that Solange has done a wonderful job uh, putting all this together, getting both Canadian and Mexican authors to write uh, and to uh, and analyze those issues which still uh, confront our two governments and our two peoples. Uh, we all know that uh, uh, Canadians love to come to Mexico in the sum in the winter, in our summer, your winter, um, to uh, enjoy the sun and the beaches and all of that. But uh, there's much more to the relationship than just the tourism part. And I think that um, it, it, it was high time that we go back to look at where we stand. And I think that, uh, Colin, your concluding chapter, uh, together with the other chapters on economic relations, political relations, uh, cultural and academic relations, are very much uh, a guide for both governments to go back to look and see where we can do more. And, and that's very much who the target audience is, isn't it, Andros and Solange? It is directed to not just the federal governments, but we are uh, our, our, our state and provincial governments as well, or and arguably city governments, because all three levels of government should be involved in this deep uh, and comprehensive relationship. And that's what the essays try to cover. I think one of the interesting uh, differences between uh, the publication a decade ago and this one uh, is exactly what you've just mentioned, and that is the proliferation of formal relationships between Canadian provinces uh, and Mexico and Canadian provinces and Mexican states, as well as Mexican states in Canadian provinces. And I think that that is... Uh, uh, a harbinger of the times in terms of international relations no longer being the exclusive domain of federal governments, but very much now uh, a domain of uh, local and uh, state or provincial uh, governments, as well as other actors, civil society, evidently, um, the media, uh, and uh, others, including the business uh, community. So we tried to put together, uh, Solange as editor, uh, a, a group of articles which we'll quickly go through. I think Solange will, has things to say on that, um, to uh, try to highlight those areas which today, 10 years after we did the Canada and Mexico's unfinished agenda, uh, I would say it's still unfinished. I don't think we have finalized uh, a true cooperative bilateral or even trilateral relationship. You, you point that out in your concluding chapter very well. But um, the fact that there is a multiplicity of actors now 
that are involved in the bilateral relationship uh, means that we need to focus not only on Ottawa and Mexico City, but obviously also on all of the provinces, the Mexican states, especially those at the border, um, civil society, uh, media, business, et cetera. No, I think that's right. Jeffrey, you've consistently argued for us to pay more attention to the Mexican relationship. Why? Colin, I remember there was a great columnist for the New York Times many decades ago called James Reston. And he went to Latin America and he wrote some columns about Latin America. And he came back and said, Americans will do anything for Latin America except read about it. And the person who was the first columnist at the Globe and Mail, George Bain, in whose footsteps I walked for 32 years, did the same thing. He worked very hard, he told me, to prepare himself. He had lots of interviews and wrote good columns and came back and nobody mentioned anything about the fact that he was in Latin America. So it seemed to me that in Canada, at the think tank level, the university level, certainly the media level, we simply weren't paying any attention to Mexico. Or if we were putting paying any, it was pretty minimal. And on the various trips that I have taken to Mexico, I have realized that it's a dynamic country. Uh, it has its problems, as all countries do, um, and that we needed to pay attention to it. And I didn't see any think tanks in Canada doing this. I didn't see any universities doing it. And so I thought, why not the Canadian Global Affairs Institute? And you and our Mexican friends have put together a very comprehensive, readable, accessible, but pretty thorough analysis of the state of the relationship. And my own view is, look, our relationships with Mexico, let's be realistic, are never going to be as intense as they are, let's say, with the United Kingdom or even with Germany. We have defense and security arrangements with countries that we'll never have with Mexico. And Mexico wouldn't want them even if we offered them. And uh, there's a language situation that uh, you know is a bit of an impediment. But that having been said, I think these essays show, and I'd be interested if Andreas and Solange agree with me, they do show that on almost every front, progress has been made in improving and intensifying the relationship. Not as much as could yet be done, but the number of people-to-people -people contacts, the amount of investment being made by Canadians in Mexico, the number of high-level visits that have taken place, one of the things that interests me, and with this I'll end, is that back when Jean Chrétien was Prime Minister of Canada, he used to talk about tres amigos, trois amis, three friends. It was all chummy chummy. They were all kind of centrist governments at all three countries. And one wondered when this chap, Lopez Obrador, became uh, President of Mexico, uh, nobody knew much about him. He seemed to be a kind of radical fellow uh, would he be anti-American? Would he campaign against the free trade agreement? Would he participate actively in its renovation? Who was this guy? And as we've seen in a wonderful chapter in here, Canada and Mexico worked together reasonably harmoniously, I would say, to move along the renegotiation of NAFTA to the conclusion that it reached. That was real progress and real cooperation behind the scenes. There were some bumps along the road. So even with Lopez Obrador there, the relationship seems to be intense. In fact, I had a session recently with the newly appointed Mexican ambassador to Canada, and uh, he's not a member of the president's party. 
And he has strong instructions from the president to improve the relationship in every way that we can. And he gave me one very small example that a certain number of Mexicans are now going to be given work permits in Vancouver to work in the hospitality industry in the same way that 25,000 agricultural workers from Mexico work in the farm industries. And these visas will be good for two years. These are incremental steps, but I think there have been a lot of them made. No, and I think that's exactly what we have to look at is in the relationship is moving it forward incrementally. I'm always a bit dubious of the great leaps because the great leaps often become great leaps backwards. Solange, first of all, congratulations on editing this, this collection. It really is impressive. And I know how much effort and work you've put into it over the last couple of years. So my congratulations. I'm sorry that some of uh, your Canadian, uh, those you approached on the Canadian side did not deliver, uh, but uh, there it is. Um, you argue that we should engage more closely and you draw on the, the broad gamut, as Jeffrey and uh, Andres have pointed out, it's economic, political, cultural relationships. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you mean by the, the need for us to come together? Yeah, thank you, Colleen. And uh, it is great to share this space with Andres and uh, with Jeffrey now. Um, yeah, we're, we're very happy because um, I, I, I think Canada and Mexico shouldn't engage more closely, um, building their existing economic, um, political, and cultural relationship. Uh, but on, on the on the for the political and cultural relationship, uh, I think uh, we should focus on on key areas. Um, I am thinking on the collaboration between parliaments, especially. And there is a piece uh, from uh, two MPs, and we also have one piece from the uh, from the Mexican uh, chair of the of the friendship group in the Congress. Uh, Ildefonso Guajardo, which uh, he, he was also the, the Ministry of Economy in Mexico. And I think uh, this closer collaboration uh, between parliaments and governmental institutions might facilitate uh, an effective nego negotiation and decision-making uh, processes, uh, which uh, considering the, the current situation, political situation in Mexico, I think is, is very important. Uh, however, as you may read in some of the pieces in the book, we also need to prioritize people-to-people -people connections and cultural exchange. Uh, there is a need to understand each other. As you said, um, unfortunately, we have these stereotypes. Canadians have a stereotype from Mexicans, and also Mexicans have a stereotype for Canadians. And uh, there are barriers, as uh, Jeffrey said, uh, language barrier is one very important one, but also uh, I think there are stereotypes, we need to fight those. And we need to use the media and we need to use uh, digital media now that we are, uh, we, we, we have new uh, uh, tools that we didn't have 10 years ago. Uh, there are great initiatives, I think, in the academia and also in the think tanks sector. I am thinking on one piece that we have uh, that focus on the North American Student Mobility Project, which is a very interesting, uh, interesting project that we need to enhance to create a brighter future in the academia. And for my personal experience, uh, I got my PhD in, in law in Mexico, and I also got my master uh, in law here in Canada. So I can say that there, from my perspective, there, there are a lot of 
uh, opportunities to understand uh, and recognize and respect the differences between legal systems. Uh, and there is a very good uh, opportunity there also to uh, foster research between uh, universities and also uh, foster and strength uh, international uh, international exchange between uh, researchers in universities and think tanks. So that what uh, that was uh, I wanted to put in this uh, in this introduction and in also in my paper and that was one of the focus of the of the document too. Um, but well, uh, there are there are many many other areas that uh, we need to push, beside the economic uh, the economic investment and trade areas. No, and as you point out, it really is a deep relationship, and it comes through in the essays which you have so well edited. Andres, we share a common neighbor, the United States, and it's that relationship that usually serves to unite us, especially in the face of American protectionism. When we work together, as I've uh, seen on issues like country of origin labeling and in both the NAFTA negotiations and then negotiations forced by Donald Trump, we're quite a formidable team. Is that a fair assessment? Uh, definitely, uh, Colin. I think, um, I think there are a good number of examples where Canada and Mexico have worked together uh, in the trilateral relationship. We did it during NAFTA. Uh, we then uh, did it uh, with uh, the H2N2 pandemic, and uh, we did it again in the renegotiation of what you call Kusma, we call Timek. Um, it is clear, I think, for both governments, both business sectors, that the trilateral agreement, whether NAFTA or now the successor, uh, are uh, crucial to our economic uh, opportunities and prosperity. I think it's clear that without such a, an arrangement, uh, Canada and Mexico would be worse off in terms of our bilateral relationships with the United States on trade and investment issues. However, uh, I think as you point out, very accurately in your chapter, there is an issue of leadership. There's an issue of leadership in terms of the political agenda, and there is an issue of leadership in the uh, business agenda. Uh, it's true that now we have new bilateral initiatives, the Mexico-Canada partnership, and the high-level economic dialogue which brings together government and uh, the private sector. But uh, the, there is a lack of what you call a champion and what uh, I recall from uh, Bob Pastor's role in pushing the North American idea and especially including in that North American idea, uh, the Canadian-Mexican relationship. So although I think we can point to progress, and uh, Jeff has, has pointed that out, uh, I still think that there is more that could be done. Uh, I think that our common relationship with the United States, as he has pointed out and you've pointed out, is different. You have security issues, you have 
an alliance, a military alliance that you are part of. There's NORAD, which by the way, uh, in an earlier attempt to define some of the issues that Mexico and the Mexican government could take on board. Uh, NORAD was one of the issues that the Council on Foreign Relations Joint Task Force and our 10-year uh, back Canada Among Nations volume uh, proposed, and that is that Mexico be part of NORAD. After all, uh, NORAD is meant to protect the North American continent, and we're very much part of it. But given those differences, those bilateral differences, um, there is still a very strong reason, in my mind, for Canada and Mexico to strengthen our bilateral ties, notwithstanding our mutual relationships with the United States. And this holds true uh, for initiatives in trade. I think it holds true for initiatives in culture, academic, as Solange has pointed out. And I think it very much holds true in the business relationship. One has to remember that uh, when NAFTA came into force, the uh, economic relationship between Mexico and Canada grew exponentially uh, over 20 years. Uh, there was an enormous new interest in terms of Canadian uh, business involvement in Mexico. And there was also a Mexican, a, a recent, uh, and not as, as large, but still a Mexican interest in Canada. And as a result of that, uh, our bilateral economic ties boomed. Now, that has to some extent plateaued. I think uh, there are fewer, uh, at least visible interests uh, on either of the two sides, uh, following on the investments Canada made in the automotive sector and in the mining sector uh, and others, or the ones that Mexico made in the um, bread industry in Canada and so on. But I think that uh, one of the uh, issues, which today is very much on the front burner uh, in terms of global uh, economic relationships is the issue of nearshoring. And evidently, uh, Mexico and Canada have a special advantage in terms of nearshoring with the United States. And with uh, the US's bilateral differences with China and with Russia, uh, Mexico and Canada have a unique opportunity to take advantage and uh, become the platforms that other uh, countries' private sectors use in order to access this wonderful North American market, which is a huge market, a huge technology market. It's a huge consumer market. And I think that there are many things that we can do uh, independently of the United States, but also with the United States. Andreas, could I just add um, a little caveat to your comment about nearshoring? If the nearshoring involves non-Chinese companies moving out of China to North America, that's one thing. If it's Chinese companies, who are doing business in North America around the world who want to come and set up investment opportunities in North America, 
the politics of China in the United States and in Canada to the same extent are so hostile at the moment, uh, remarkably hostile in fact, almost dangerously hostile, that those kind of investments by Chinese companies are going to be viewed often with great suspicion depending upon where they are. Whereas I have the impression that in Mexico, those kinds of suspicions would not apply. I think, I think that's a, a fundamental difference in attitude in geopolitics and in foreign policy at the moment as between Mexico and the two North American countries. This country, Canada, 20 years ago, used to be more like Mexico's attitude towards China. But now for a variety of reasons, which we won't go into, Canadian public opinion and governmental policy, we're having a great debate right now about Chinese interference in our political system, has turned the country and the governments, plural, quite hostile and negative towards China. I often I, I'll throw out a foreign policy. This is just a fun thing. I always wondered whether Mexico and Canada could become a good partnership in any peacekeeping operations that might be required in Latin America. Because we know how to do peacekeeping. And you are a Latin American country, although because of your Spanish. So you have the language you have a perfectly competent military. I know you can't send your military overseas for constitutional reasons, I understand that. But you might be able to make a distinction between police forces and military. And it would be an interesting arrangement because the two would bring different skills to an operation like that. Uh, and some years ago, you may remember Brazil took on a responsibility in Haiti. Now that's not a Spanish speaking country. Anyway. It's always something I've thought of if the OAS ever said, gee, we need a peacekeeping operation in country X or border Y, Canada and Mexico would be logical partners. Oh, and that's one of the great things about the, the essays. That there's all sorts of ideas out there. And I want to turn to you, Solange, for a minute. Uh, I was rereading Graham Clark, the Canadian ambassador's essay this morning, and he pointed to the recent Three Amigos Summit, and in particular, the Canada-Mexico action plan, something that Andres mentioned as opening the door to more collaboration. He also underlined the value of North American uh, regional production platform. Again, the French or and again, Andres just spoke about this. Now you've edited all these pieces. Um, I'm wondering if, if there are, and Jeffrey's seized on a couple, if, if there are a couple of areas of collaboration that we should be prioritizing, particularly in the economic sense. Thank you, Colin. Yeah, I, I, I think there might be some uh, priorities. One is, uh, of course, uh, strengthening the regional production platform, uh, considering nurturing. Uh, just uh, I don't want to repeat what Andres just mentioned. But I would like to highlight something that Luz Maria de la Mora put in her piece uh, about the importance of doing this, uh, this strengthening by promoting uh, workforce development and innovation. Uh, she uh, highlights the importance of developing the talent industry, uh, focus on export-oriented sectors, for, for example, automotive, airspace, um, digital industries, and clean technologies, uh, which is, I think, that the, the piece of Luz Maria is very, very, um, very brilliant about this, uh, this topic. There are also other priorities in my, in my view. Uh, I think the, to, to enhance the energy trade and integration is another one. Uh, 
there is another very uh, good piece uh, in the in the in the book uh, that uh, Kelly Ole and and Joe Callan uh, write um, that underlines how Canada and Mexico can leverage their shared interest in energy to establish a secure North American uh, energy system with free movement of electricity, oil, and natural gas. Of course, there are a lot of uh, regulatory and political challenges there, but uh, I think that is, an, there, that, that is another good uh, priority. And of course, there are many multilateral uh, topics that I also believe, uh, something that uh, might be related with uh, what Jeffrey just uh, mentioned on, on human rights, but also um, I mentioned in, in, in my piece about the collaboration on sustainable development, climate change, uh, marine debris, and endangered species in, in, in Mexico, Canada has a lot of experience on protection of endangered species and uh, a lot of experience also on, on sustainable development. So Mexico has uh, might uh, benefit with the, that experience considering what we are facing now with endangered species such as the turtles, jaguars, uh, the vaquita marina in Mexico. So I think those uh, could be uh, priorities for this uh, relationship. Oh, I think that's right. And I, I remember it, the fifth anniversary of, of NAFTA, uh, Luz Maria was my uh, Mexican counterpart. And with the American, we decided at that point, we chose the monarch butterfly as the symbol uh, of, uh, of NAFTA because it transited from Canada down to Mexico, down to the jungles and things down there. But they, it was endangered and still is endangered. So I, I certainly think you've seized on a, that is an issue on which we should be working more closely together. Andres, I want to move to something that is plaguing, uh, it, it's the movement of peoples. You know, it's a global phenomenon, but it's got distinct North American challenges as we read daily in the U.S. media, especially regarding the Mexico-U.S. border. But in many ways, the real problem, I think, is on Mexico's southern frontier with Central America. Do we pay enough attention to this challenge, which is, of course, accentuated by climate change, as well as criminal cartels that are engaged in not just drug smuggling, but people smuggling as well? Colin, before I before I answer uh, this particular uh, point that you make, I, I'd like to remind your listeners that there is on there is one issue on our bilateral relationship which involves the United States, which has changed fundamentally, and that is the merger between Canadian Pacific and Kansas City Southern Railroads. You now have a true NAFTA rail network that spreads from Canada all the way down to the southern part of Mexico. And that has ha, will help, and it, as soon as it is finalized, uh, the movement of goods uh, between the three countries. And uh, we will see, undoubtedly, a smoother uh, transportation link, rail transportation link, uh, in the trilateral arena. On the issue of migration, obviously this is an issue um, like drugs that we have uh, conflict with the United States mainly uh, because uh, we over the years have become the natural conduit for drug trafficking into the United States and also for migrants 
uh, fleeing either political upheavals in their home countries or economic migrants who just are looking for a better life uh, outside of their country and mainly in the United States. Uh, these two issues were issues that up until recently were just bilateral issues between Mexico and the United States. I have felt that in recent times, these issues are also now Canadian issues. Uh, they are Canadian issues, obviously, in terms of drug trafficking, but they are also Canadian issues in terms of migration, because the two logical, natural entry points into the United States for third country nationals uh, is our Mexico and Canada. And there has been, an, uh, as I understand it, a, a rather hefty increase in the number of third country nationals that are attempting to get into the United States from on the Canadian border, uh, including, by the way, some of the Central American and Mexican migrants who use the Mexican-US border to uh, try to enter the United States, obviously without the appropriate visas, papers, permits, and so on. So uh, I believe that uh, Mexico is doing uh, what it can to uh, try to stem the tide of Central American migrants, especially from the Northern Central American Triangle, uh, Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. Uh, and there has been a drastic reduction in the number of third country nationals appearing at the US border uh, with Mexico, a 70% reduction, I might add, uh, since Title 42 uh, was eliminated from US policy. Uh, but there is still a migratory pressure, uh, not only from Central America, but from Africa and from Asia uh, into the United States, both through Mexico and through Canada. So it behooves us, the two governments, Canada and Mexico, to work together as much as possible on this issue and to try to find common ground in terms of how to deal with the phenomenon. On peacekeeping, uh, Mexico participates in peacekeeping operations under the UN flag, uh, but the OAS does not really have a regional peacekeeping function. Uh, they, it is limited to mediation functions in which Mexico is participating in terms of mediation, for example, in Colombia between the government and the remaining guerrilla forces that have not uh, decided to take up a political role. Uh, we are also uh, helping in the dialogue within Venezuela uh, for a successful conclusion. Uh, in this, Canada has also been active, so that's another area. Um, Mexico took advantage back in the, I'd say probably in the 1990s, if I'm my memory serves me, in sending uh, Mexicans to train at Canada's uh, peacekeeping facility, uh, where we were able to, uh, for the very first time, send a contingent of police uh, 
to El Salvador uh, when the Salvadorian peace agreements were concluded. And that uh, contingent served very well. And there is now a contingent uh, waiting to be deployed uh, of all places to Mali. Uh, so the, the truth of the matter is that uh, within the regional context, uh, there, there are no formal peacekeeping operations, um, uh, but uh, we do participate in other peacekeeping efforts around the world. Colin, could I flag what I think is going to be a, a very considerable challenge and the need for the three countries to really try to work together. And that is the whole automobile industry is going to go undergo an enormous transformation. It's already started from the internal combustion engine vehicles to electric. This means everything from finding the materials that we need to make electric batteries to where these new vehicles are going to be assembled. So that this is a total transformation by 2030 or a few years thereafter, all of the big car manufacturers, and Tesla's already there, have pledged that they're going to be out of the internal combustion engine business, which means retooling, it means retraining, and it means resourcing the materials. Now, on the first of these, the resourcing of the materials, all three of these countries have certain of those materials. China has more of them than anybody else, and China was very far-sighted in taking a long leap no pun intended, with a great leap forward, uh, on electric vehicles, and they've stolen a march on the rest of the world. So we're going to be playing catch up. Now, the government of Mexico, I believe, and I stand to be corrected by Salon, she's the lawyer there, has announced it's going to nationalize the lithium industry. And okay, that may or may not be a wise thing to do, but it could present certain challenges, let's put it that way. Getting access to these materials, I can speak less about Mexico than Canada, is an arduous process. It's arduous because the minerals tend to be in tough spots to get at. There's often not any roads to get at them, so you have to build those. There are uh, labyrinthine, multi-layered approval processes that are required before a permit is given. There are Aboriginal land claims and constitutional elements having to do with the indigenous rights that have to be taken into consideration. So this is going to be a long process. And the United States is very anxious to have access to as many of these minerals as possible. So that's one element of the dilemma, not dilemma, the challenge. The other element is that the United States has decided on a big time industrial strategy called the Anti-Inflation Act. If ever there was a misnamed act, that's it, but that's what it's called. Now, we just announced in Canada a $14 billion subsidy over 10 years to Volkswagen to have an assembly plant in Southwestern Ontario for electric. And there's four or five other companies that are just sitting there waiting to open their negotiations with the government. Mexico is gonna find itself, if it isn't already, in the same situation. So we could all be in a subsidy war here uh, as we try to grab a certain number of jobs and investment dollars in this retooled automotive industry. So we somehow have to avoid getting into a subsidy war, especially the smaller countries, Canada and Mexico, because we don't have the 
I don't think, the economic firepower that the United States has. And this is going to be something that in the negotiations for the renewal of the agreement, the three-party, three-country agreement, I, I, I dare say is going to come up. And we've got to figure out how to do this in a, an amicable, economically sensible way. And at the moment, the United States has decided it's going to do what it, it, it's going to do because it's got China on its mind and the other North American countries are going to have to just kind of play catch up or decide how they're going to deal with this industrial policy of the United States. You know, Jeffrey, my one of my my first job when we were when we were negotiating the original Canada-US free trade agreement was to work on the subsidies group. And we were negotiating with the American Commerce Department uh, chief at the time. And I soon realized that she really had no interest in coming up with a subsidies code. Uh, because the Americans would do what they were going to do, partly, as she pointed out, as a function of the way Congress works. So we punted it to the WTO, where we came up with a subsidies code. But essentially, that, that has continued to bedevil us. But at that point, we regarded subsidies as kind of a bad idea. And I've never forgotten Sylvia Ostry's uh, advice on, on the governments and subsidies, that uh, governments were very bad at picking winners, but losers were very good at picking good the pockets picking of government. government. Right. Yes. And so that has been kind of my abiding sort of approach. But now the United States has embraced with gusto industrial policy. We appear to be doing the same. The Europeans are doing it. So I don't hold out much hope. No, no, I, the I agree. Or any I place just, else. Maybe, maybe within the, the friendly confines of North America, we could set some guidelines or guardrails or whatever phrase you want to use. Otherwise, I mean, I just gave you the Volkswagen example, but Stellaris wants a subsidy. And I was at a conference yesterday where a senior official said there's three other companies lining up waiting to demand this. And I have no idea the same thing will happen in Mexico. Oh, once once you're in line, you'll be in line. Look, um, my, my final question to you all, and I want to start with you, Solange, because you edited this, uh, this magnificent collection of papers. There are lots of good ideas in how to further solidify the relationship. We've talked about some of them, but you can't, as we all know, boil the ocean. So if you had to pick a couple of prospects, whether uh, aimed at business, government, or civil society, what would you start with? And I want to start with you, Solange, then I'm going to turn to Andras and then to you, Jeffrey. So Solange, why don't you start? Because we've talked about a number of things, but you've read all the papers. What would you pick out of this? Because again, and I encourage all the listeners to look at the papers because they're just rich with ideas and also with, I thought, a lot of practical recommendations. Thank you, Colleen. Um, yeah, before going, that, I just wanted to answer some for, uh, to Jeffrey about the, the, the lithium question. Uh, what I what I what I see in the case of the of the of the lithium, uh, what the Mexican government is planning to do. I think it's not going to be reachable. Uh, but my my hope in the in the case of the lithium, because all the all the reasons you said, uh, there are uh, social, political, um, regulatory challenges. But my hope in this case is that there are a lot of uh, local interests, uh, and the local governments, um, for example, in the case of Tesla in Nuevo León and other cases in, in different states, they have been very successful in putting their economic interests before the federal interest and the federal ideology. So I think 
that might be the case of the case of uh, in, in, in the lithium uh, case. We will see, of course, I don't have a magic ball, but, uh, but I think it will be, it will be the case. Um, coming back to, to, to what you are asking, Colin, I think uh, the collaboration, what my pick, there are many issues in the book that uh, I think are very worth it. But in, in my case, and because of, or of course, of uh, some uh, interests, uh, personal interests, are, uh, would be the collaboration on global issues. Because I think there are a lot of things and opportunities that are not uh, taking account uh, in the last years, uh, considering, of course, the climate, uh, the climate uh, change issues uh, that are related with the energy collaboration and uh, climate uh, is related to clean energy issues. So collaboration on global issues. And um, the other one will be the academic understanding. Uh, especially because there is uh, very, very few things uh, in, in that area. And we need to strengthen the academic research collaboration. There are many possibilities. Some examples may look like establishing joint research in initiatives. For example, in the case of, uh, of what is happening with climate change in, in, in beaches in Mexico and how it affects uh, um, the species and uh, the tourism in Mexican in, in Mexican states, uh, promote research partnerships, uh, create research networks and consortiums, enhance research communication and dissemination, and many others. So I think uh, that would be my my pick and on the recommendation. But of course, there are many other issues related to trade and economic uh, in economic areas. No, exactly. Those are good picks. And I think, but again, as, as we know in government, you can only do so much. I, I remember Warren Christopher telling me that even the United States government could really only handle three big issues at a time. Andres, if you had to look, you've, you've seen the, you've read the essays, what would you pick from this and say this is what we should be trying to focus on? Well, I, th I think uh, what uh, Jeffrey has pointed out is is probably one of the very high priorities. Uh, our automotive sectors, our respective automotive sectors, Canada, Mexico, and the United States, are the largest part of the trilateral economic relationship. And therefore, we need to prepare for what is already happening, but what will happen in 2030, 2040, 2050, in terms of this fundamental change in terms of how uh, automobiles are run. And our automotive sectors, uh, together with our energy sectors, uh, need to be ready for that. I believe Mexico is far behind. Uh, we are still privileging fossil fuel energy production uh, over renewables. Uh, Canada is, I think, further ahead than we are. But the Americans are further ahead, as Jeffrey has pointed out, than both of us. And so I think we need to work together, Canada, Mexico, on trying to make sure that we are prepared and that our automotive sectors, uh, in the case of Canada and Mexico, are able to be part of this major revolution in terms of automotive uh, and vehicular 
uh, combustion. The, oh, other point, the other point which I would uh, sort of flag, uh, uh, Colin, uh, is within the political framework, uh, the need for uh, political leadership. Uh, I don't think that these occasional summits that take place or the visits that uh, senior officials make to one or to the other country are sufficient to really create a political alliance on issues where we are on the same wavelength. I think that uh, we need more communication, more media coverage, more social media inter exchanges. And uh, that is probably the one challenge also that uh, needs to be addressed. So I would put those two as my priorities. I think those are various too. Jeffrey? Well, whether we like it or not, climate change is gonna be an increasingly important issue. And the Mexican government at the moment is a bit offside with Canada, the United States, and what we're trying to do with targets. Lourdes Mechiar, who contributed an essay to this, said at a conference that I was at that Germany produces more solar power than Mexico, and they have about a quarter of the number of hours of sunlight. So I don't know all of Mexico, but every time I'm there, the sun seems to be shining. And Mexico has two very long coastlines, and the wind usually blows where the water meets the sea. So I would have thought Mexico is an ideal country geographically. It's also mountainous in some areas. That's good too for solar and 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 not not a dark cold place like us our country but you got wind you got solar you, you got it all for a big industry right and you and you could produce the stuff there or you could import anyway so i think we can work uh together share ideas share, share technology we're going to be moving very dramatically in alberta into carbon capture and storage which is a controversial issue among environmentalists but we're committed to go there and if Mexico is intending to increase and enhance its fossil fuel production, it's got to answer the question posed by environmentalists, not just in Mexico, but elsewhere. What are you going to do about these emissions? And carbon capture and storage might well be uh, the answer that Mexico can deliver. I hope it's thinking about it. We certainly are here. It's got its critics. So I think the whole energy sector of trying to share ideas and push each other along a bit, you know, prod each other is not a bad thing. And, um, you know, if Canada expresses at the moment some dismay at a couple of things the Mexicans are doing, it's not because we have clean hands. It's just we aspirationally are more aggressive than the Mexicans. And Canada always is big on aspiration. Delivery is another question. So I, I think that's pretty important. And I agree with political leadership, but I think one has to be realistic here. Both of these countries have a multitude of foreign policy questions that they're preoccupied with at the moment. You're not preoccupied with Ukraine. We sure are. Our military is there. Our diplomats in Europe and at the United Nations are focusing. This is the number one issue. The Polish prime minister has just been here. The German president was just here. I mean, so much bandwidth. And, and at the moment, that issue is taking up a lot of bandwidth in this country and will for a while. So the amount of bandwidth that Canada has to deal with, and we also have an Indo-Pacific strategy, we're trying to improve our relations with countries there except China. So I think one has to simply be realistic about the amount of time 
an effort that either Mexico or Canada can put into the relationship. Not that we take it for granted, not that we work harder at it, but there is a bandwidth question here. And I think we should just be realistic about it and not get our hopes up in the stratosphere. Jeffrey, thank you. My final question always is, what are you reading or streaming these days? Jeffrey, why don't you start? Well, for my highly intellectual book club, we're reading Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology, um, which has been a bestseller in the United States. For my own amusement as an amateur historian, I'm reading a fabulous book by Richard Cohen called Making History, which is a very long book about the historians going back as far as Thucydides and Herodotus. And because of my interest in Mexico, I recently read a book called The Dope, The Real History of the Mexican Drug Trade by Benjamin Smith, who actually is a British academic. And it goes back to 1900 or thereabouts when cannabis plants were being planted up in the mountains and hills of Mexico up to today's cartelization and mafiaization of the drug trade. Well, I certainly endorse the Cohen book, which is also, I think, extremely well-written. Andres, yeah. what are you reading or streaming these days? Well, funnily enough, uh, I'm also reading, I'm reading two books right now. One is the Cohen book. So we're on the, oh, three. We're on the same wavelength. <laughs> we're, we're a good company. <laughs> and the other is, is Henry Kissinger's leadership uh, volume, which uh, analyzes uh, several of the uh, political leaders that he considers to have been the outstanding political leadership during the time that he has been alive, given that he's just been 100 years old. So it's, it's quite interesting. Both are, to some extent, uh, historical. Um, and in terms of streaming, uh, I have been streaming a series called Drops of God, which is a Franco-Japanese series about wine. And it's extremely <laughs> interesting. It's extremely interesting uh, because it's very well acted, very well written, and uh, eight episodes. So I'm on episode five, but that's what I'm doing. And it's, you said it's called Drops of God. Drops of God. Excellent. Well, I cannot think of a better way to describe what, what am I, why wine is such a useful thing for us in these troubled times. Solange, what are you reading or streaming these days? Well, I am, I am reading two books. So as one is How to Lose a Country from Echetel Kuran. Uh, I am very interested in uh, autocracies and how to lose uh, democracies. So it is uh, one of the topics that I used to write in the newspaper and in media. And the other one is uh, for, for, my, for my kids, I am mom, I'm twins, eight years old. So I, we are reading uh, Astrophysics for Young People in a Hurry, um, <laughs> which is uh, from Neil deGrasse. And this is very interesting one. So <laughs> yeah, and assuming oh. no, I don't have time. I have been working on the book. Well, no, exactly. Well, look, I'm, I'm glad that the future is in good hands. Canada needs more astrophysicists. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you all. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Global Exchange. We were joined today by Andras Rosenthal, Jeffrey Simpson, and Solange Marquez. I encourage listeners to go to the CJA homepage. We will link to the note in the program notes and read the collected essays contained in Mexico and Canada, Two Nations in a North American Partnership. You can find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The Global Exchange is brought to you by our team at CJAI. Thanks go to our producer, Joe Kalane, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Colin Robertson. 
Thanks for joining us today on the Global Exchange.